Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Well, this is it. God has finally had enough and brings judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel for the last time. And when he's done, the nation of Israel uh, essentially no longer exists, and the people of Israel are removed from the land. Hundreds of years of rebellion was finally and fully addressed, and the results were devastating. So what does this have to do with us? Well, we looked at this on Sunday, and today I'm joined once again by Matt Barfield. Hey there. And Andy Montgomery. Oh, why, hello. As we try and break down what's going on in 2 Kings 15 through 17 and look at the fall of Israel. Okay, so uh, 2 Kings 15 through 17, we actually dip into the very end of 14, and we skip over most of 16 because that's actually (laughs) the southern kingdom. Uh, but it's nice to just have a, a big number. That's a that's a still a pretty sizable chunk. So, and we're we're covering a lot of kings here. It's a sad three chapters. It really is. Buckle mm-hmm. up. And um, so part of the reason that we we're covering all of them is because there's a number of kings, and most of them are barely a blip on the radar. Um, the first one that we'll look at is Jeroboam the second. Now, uh, just so you're aware, Scripture doesn't call him Jeroboam the second. It just calls him Jeroboam, but he's the second. Uh, Jeroboam in Israel, so we'll go ahead and just call him Jeroboam the second to help keep it clear in our minds. He comes along, uh, he's a wicked king, he follows along in the sins of Jeroboam the first, which is kind of just par for the course at this point, and um, we find something a little bit unexpected here, and that is that during his reign, uh, Israel actually has success, and they actually expand their borders. I remember his father was Joe Ash, the guy who was banging the ground with the arrows and had several victories over Syria. Well, it seems that his son comes along and continues the trend, and they push out their borders a little bit, and it specifically says that God does this because he had compassion on them. Verse 26 of 2 Kings 14 um, says, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So this is just kind of really interesting, and I thought it'd be helpful to pause, and I know we talked about this in my uh, Sunday school class, but why is it that God would allow military success and prosperity right before he brings judgment on the nation as a whole? Maybe he's setting them up for endurance for what they're about to go through. So there's this there's this time where people can, can be prepared. And so this is probably... Um, you know, these people are going to go into captivity, so they're going to go into captivity with some hope, maybe, with some expectation of God still working. And is that too far of a reach? I don't know. Yeah, I think that makes Just sense. an idea. I don't know. I'm still reminded of the discussion we had even last week of yeah. how so often our generations, the, the current generation, benefits from the righteousness right. of the previous sure. ones. Sure. Mm. And uh, so that, that that's the best answer I, I can think of off the top of my head is that they are still banking off of all the good that was done by others. Before. And we're always, always going back to God's mercy. I mean, God, yeah. God loves Israel. And it says it right there. Verse 27. He's not going to blot them out under heaven. He's not going to let that happen. And he still hasn't let that happen. So, you know, there's that mercy factor coming in. It almost feels like, um, it's like you have a well of God's grace and you're like, is it, is it running? Is it starting to run dry? And then it never runs dry, yeah. you know? Yeah. And uh, he, he just continually shows that to us in the midst of our continuing undeserving, uh, undeserving nature of that. Even as they're getting judged. I mean, it's happening. Both are happening at the same time. Maybe yeah. that's the hard thing is to realize that God's both judging and blessing at the same time. Yeah. And God can do both of those things simultaneously. Maybe that's hard to, for us to parse. Which does, if as we grasp those things, build more and more confidence in our mind of how our God can work. Because, I, I mean, yeah. 
let's just be real together for just a second. I know that in all of our minds, we're trying to plan out what's going on in our world right now. Sure. And to know that God not only knows our ideas, he also has ideas that are much higher and much more infinite. And he is orchestrating every little event for his purpose. And he did that then according to his own blessing until his, according to his own justice, it's never one hat at a time. He's right. always wearing all of those attributes. And, and the precision's amazing. I, the hmm. the yeah. illustration that comes to my mind is when God promised Caleb and Joshua that they would go into the promised land and everybody else, all 600,000 of them would be dead. And, you know, statistically speaking, it'd be kind of obvious to think, well, maybe God missed some of the 600,000. <laughs> but when they number them, there's not one name. Or that maybe God would accidentally roll over Joshua or Caleb. <laughs> like, <laughs> we were trying to knock out all 600,000 and we got you. Sorry, Joshua. Yeah. Uh, but no, he's extremely precise. He can leave two out of 600,000 and get everyone else which is crazy without the country collapsing, without the, pop, without the, the nation falling apart. That's an amazing thing. God is very, very precise. All of his prophecy would, would be you know, thrown out if, it, if he wasn't the God of precision. Yeah. He it's can, incredible. He can actually nail it. He can stop on a dime. He can do both judgment and blessing at the same time and not be wrong. Yeah. It's awesome. I think Andy was the one who made the comment, and we had somebody else mention this too, that there's, there was good... Um, that's kind of rolling over. And somebody made the point, you know, you just had Elijah and Elisha just a couple of generations ago. You got to right. think that there are righteous. And you think uh, even of, of Abraham, you know, bartering with God, will you destroy the city for this many righteous? Well, what about this many righteous? And that um, it's possible that during this time, God is is blessing them because there is still righteous. There are people who've been brought back to the Lord, uh, but that over time that, again, kind of starts to disintegrate and people are continuing to walk in the sin of Jeroboam. And... Um, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting, an interesting passage. Jeroboam the first. Yeah, the sin of Jeroboam the first. This is Jeroboam the second. And, and I came from the Middle East where all the kings are Abdullah. Abdullah. <laughs> we got a lot of the same name. It is interesting. Jeroboam's the only king who's uh, has the name shows up in twice in the mm -hmm. same kingdom. Like there's a lot that overlap from the north sure. and the south. And uh, the sad thing is. You know, you look at who his father was. His father was Joash, who goes to Elijah, and on the one hand is, you know, my father, my father, the horseman of wow. Israel and the chariots thereof. And then he names his son after Jeroboam, wow. who led the nation into this idolatry that nobody steps back from. And so there's just a little bit of, you know, as we would say today, cognitive dissonance with yeah, all of that. Yeah, for sure. But, so that's Jeroboam the second. So this is kind of where things start off in the lesson, right? Things start off really, really well. Um, and if you read the books of Hosea and Amos, they talk a lot about uh, social sins of the people. There's a lot of uh, abuse of the poor. There's a lot of wealth uh, that's just kind of rotting the uh, the spiritual core of the country. And there's warnings, hey, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. And you can almost imagine um, there's different ways that people kind of break down the dates. The one that I go with says that from the death of Jeroboam II to the end of Israel is like 30 years. Wow. So you have this country that's doing really, really well. Things are expanding. Uh, you've got the prophet Jonah who's going around telling everyone, and rightfully so, on, God, on God's behalf, hey, you know, we're going to expand. And then you've got Hosea and Amos who come along and say, but if you keep doing this wrong, then God's going to bring judgment. And everyone just writes them off. Like, mm. okay, mm. yeah, sure, whatever. Uh-huh, no, we're, thank you. You can go do your own thing now. And they're right. Yeah. And within 30 years, it's just a sobering reminder. And that's kind of the theme that I uh, took for the lesson was just this idea of God's swift and final judgment. That when God judges, it it comes lightning fast. When you look at the history of a nation, 30 years, that's a generation. Right. And they're going to have six kings in that time. <laughs> and it's just, um, it's a revolving door of treachery and assassinations. And 
So let's um let's talk through this a little bit, and I'll just kind of run through what the kings look like. So you have Jeroboam, he reigns for a while, he dies. His son is Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah reigns for six months, uh, and then Shalom kills him, who's probably some kind of uh, general figure or um, a servant who decided he wanted to reign. And Shalom did really well. He reigned for a month, <laughs> so he beat Zimri, who only reigned for seven days. Wow. But uh, Shalom only reigns for a month, and then Menahem comes and wipes him out. Menahem reigns for uh, ten years, and his son uh, Pekahiah comes along, and uh, Pekahiah is assassinated by Pekka, and then Pekka reigns for a while and is assassinated by Hosea, and then Hosea is the king uh, who's finally defeated and carried away captive into Assyria. Wow. Have a great week. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, and somebody made the comment, too, uh, in our class I thought was really good. What goes around comes around, you know. Here you have these kings, and it's like, well, I'm going to kill, kill the king and take over. It's like, all right, do you, do you really want to do that? Are you right, sure? Right. And uh, there also seems to be, if you read carefully and kind of between the lines, there seems to be some of this pro-Assyrian, anti-Assyrian back and forth. So Menahem pays off Assyria, and so you'd imagine that his son's kind of an Assyrian loyalist, like, hey, let's stay with Assyria, and then Pekka kills him and goes to war with Assyria. Mm. And that shows up in Isaiah 7 in the Virgin Shall Conceive passage, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit next week. Um, and so Pekka is at war with Assyria, and then Hosea kills him, and again, pays Assyria. So now we're back to being pro-Assyria, and then Hosea turns against Assyria, and Assyria is like, all right, we're, we're done with this. And they come and wipe them out. And so uh, Hosea in particular talks about this, that you know Israel's like a, a silly dove going back and forth to Egypt and Assyria, like, mm. who are we going to follow today? Who are we going to follow today? And they're, they're playing the political game. I mean, they are yeah. trying to... They're a tiny little country, and they know it, and they're thinking, okay, we've got these two big superpowers, one in the north, one in the south. I bet we can play them against each other and come out on top. And it just God says, no, don't do that. Trust me. And they're like, no, we think we can figure this out, and it just blows up in their face. Hmm. So as we think about some of this stuff, uh, we think about, uh, let's talk about the revolutions of Israel because they're recorded pretty objectively, right? Like Scripture doesn't actually comment on them in the book of Kings, Uh what do you think God's perspective is on this, on these revolutions, these back and forth? Uh, what's his view on this situation? I mean, I suppose as we look at it, it feels like the the final fulfillment of where all of their moral depravity kept leading them <laughs> mm-hmm. to the point where now even amongst the leadership, there's there's no stability. You know, righteousness exalts a nation, sends a reproach to any people, and now their their leadership are just facing that one after another after another. Well, you think about God's intention in forming the nation and putting them in this land, what, what it was that he wanted. He wanted the land to be free of blood is one of the points that he makes yeah. when he tells Israel to establish the cities of refuge for the slayer to go there. He says, lest the land be stained with blood, and I turn against it. So God desires the place to be blood-free, um, you know, not, not the uh, innocent being killed, not injustice reigning and people being murdered. And what's happening at the highest level? is murder after murder after murder. So the very thing God established Israel to be, Israel is the opposite of. Hmm. And that's that's a, um, you know, it, we, we say it must break God's heart or make him sad. It's such an indictment on a people to do the opposite of what God meant you to be. Um, it's, such, it's, it's the ultimate personal failure, right? God sets us up to be his sons, his daughters, those that are bought, bought with the blood of Christ are part of his family, to act like the family of the devil, to to go to the other side and to not glorify him the way we're meant to be. What a personal tragedy, right? Here's a nation doing that. 
here's a nation being the antithesis of what God's purpose was of it was, and that you know whatever emotion we're going to put on that, I'm sure is going to fall short of God's uh, actual thoughts on all this. But surely it has to go into all of this is to realize that God intended for this place to be the opposite of what we're seeing here. I think um, too, it's interesting that you mentioned that about the bloodshed and the violence. I think in our churches we don't that doesn't resonate as much with us because I mean you know as a pastor I'm constantly preaching to people, hey you know be sexually pure right. And we right. come, so we read, you know, that Israel was, you know, there's a lot of immorality and there was a lot of violence. And we're like, yeah, immorality, don't be immoral right. like Israel was. And I think the violence is a little bit tougher for us because there aren't a lot of people in my church that I'm aware of who are struggling with whether or not they're going to kill their neighbor. Sure. It just, it's something that, that, that seems a little bit more removed. But when you, you're right, when you go back and you, you put yourself in this context, um, you realize that the, the violence is a big deal to God. It you know, Naboth is the tipping point for yeah. God when it comes to Ahab. Right. And that's surprising to us. With all the bad stuff he was doing, I with mean, all the false idols and all Yeah, he's things. setting up bell worship. He's <laughs> building temples for his wife. His right. wife is going out there and killing the prophets of the Lord. And we don't really hear a whole lot of indictment against him. And then Jezebel goes and kills an innocent man because right. Ahab wants his vineyard. And God tells Elijah, all right, that's the last straw. Yeah. And, hmm. you know, that... That really just sets up, ought to set up in our mind how much God cares about justice. Yeah, that there true. be justice in the land, and I think yeah, some life. life. Yeah, for sure. I think sometimes we don't realize kind of how those things are all related. I mean, there certainly mm. are are related, and and maybe maybe in a sort of Sermon on the Mount way, we thought that murder was bad, but hating your brother is mm. bad in that same vein. Right, it, yeah. it it moves that way. So, so maybe we have enough law and order externally imposed upon us, so that pastors don't have to say, "Hey, be careful not to murder your, <laughs> you know, the deacon you disagree with." Um, you know, so sorry, deacons, didn't mean to throw you under the bus there, but um, you know, I'm not sure actually feeling that way. Then you should. <laughs> no, I got a great deacon. I love my deacon. Um, but it's it's uh, you know, one of those things that that it really is in the same vein. And so when that external control comes off, all of a sudden you start to see what was really there. Uh, the heart that that really was doing those kinds of inward murders. Um, you know, we're in a place now where, where our life's kind of sanitized. We all probably ate some sort of protein, animal meat today, and didn't kill anything to get it, make that happen, right? Mm-hmm. We're all very distanced from that. But that doesn't mean we weren't killing animals. We still ate them, right? So I think, you know, when you talk about morally pure and pornography, we have these sort of separations from the actual adulterous act, that we're, we're, we've been able to mm. separate ourselves from that, like we separate ourselves from slaughtering cows. We separate ourselves from the adulterous act by these other insular, insular levels. We do the same thing, I think, with murder. That's that's way maybe way down the line, and we have all these sort of intermediary steps that are in the same line. Yeah, Does the that hate, seem too the far to say that? Violent. No, I, I mean, I think that's what Christ is getting at, where he's saying, you know, what you you got to start downstream, and where does this start? It starts with hatred, it starts with lust, and so... You've got to address the hatred. You've got to address the lust. And, you know, a lot of Christians realize, you, you know, especially Christian men, as I've talked in counseling and um, just interacting with, with guys, you know, there's a very clear sense, like, I, I'm not allowed to think immoral thoughts. Right. There's not always the same, I'm not allowed to be angry with people. Yeah. Like, we, we struggle with that one more. Well, then we got a lot of really good King James words like variance and emulations and strife mm. and all those things that maybe distance the actual idea. Yeah. From, from, they really mm. are bad. It really is wrong to have these, um, you know, Pastor Brandon preached on brotherly kindness uh, last week, right? Yeah. And, and do I love all Christians? 
Do mm-hmm. I love all Christians? This is why, and I, I guess I've been convicted about that in the past because I developed this sort of this sort of uh, shorthand in my mind, this little rubric of there are two kinds of people in my life. There, there are two kinds of Christians in my life. There are Christians that I love and Christians that I'm going to love. And, and, I, and I want to be a person who's actively trying to get them out of the going to love category into the love category. And that's not always easy, right? I don't yeah. always see eye to eye with people, um, but, but, I, but I want to be minded that way. I am going to love this Christian. One, you know, yeah. and, and when we do that, we're moving away from that murder line. We're mm-hmm. moving away from that line that gets us to those really violent, terrible things. I have, have a, sorry, I was just going to say the other, one other lesson that I realize as I'm looking at this too, is just the reminder of different sins do have different consequence mm-hmm. and some of them have heavier consequences and that's, that's intentional. I mean, another situation of violence that we didn't even speak of was obviously it was one of the key sins that led to the flood. <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. Violence was a, a major sin that was so despicable in God's eyes that it was basically like time for a blank slate. Yeah. Um, we're, we're starting this over again. With and Noah. that Galatians 5 list, it says, it, it starts with, in verse 19, with adultery, fornication, uncleanness. So it's going to lasciviousness. Mm-hmm. Then it does idolatry, witchcraft. Then it does hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, and then murders. Right, and mm. then drunkenness, and then revelings, and such like. So you kind of do see those lines coming out, that moral line, that violence line, that, that witchcraft line of those evil things. I have a message that I, I've, I've preached to a couple of different times when I've had like a, a junior audience from Jonah 4, and it's on malice. Mm. And I look at them and I say, kids, do you ever want bad things to happen to people because you don't like them? And I mean, the answer is yes. Yeah. Like every kid feels that. I feel that as an adult. Like that guy cut me off in traffic. I right. hope he gets into an accident. Oh, that's terrible. That's so malice. And, and we, don't, we don't even want to say that out loud. Right. But that's what's in our hearts. Mm. And we, we don't ever like, you know, we don't call that out and say, you can't do that. You're not allowed to want bad things to happen to other people. Now, you're allowed to cry for justice. Sure. Um, but, y- y- you know, this idea that says, I want bad things to happen to other people because they wronged me and I don't like them. Um, that's a... That's a no, no, Ben. This step. is this, it's it's righteous anger, right? It's oh, righteous. Yeah. <laughs> we are so quick to defend ourselves with the righteous oh, anger man. argument. Yeah, um, it's that's a real easy one to get into. Interesting Just, oh, side see, they note. Did wrong. Yeah. Interesting side note. The words righteous anger never show up in scripture. <laughs> Ouch again. Hello. Now I'm not saying that it's necessarily an unbiblical concept. But we have to be careful because you're right, Andy. We use that and just kind of give ourselves a, a blank slate for a whole lot of stuff. And we just have to be really careful because the phrase righteous anger does not show up in Scripture. And right? we have a very quick scriptural proof, too, because we go to Jesus flipping the, ta- the tables of the money changers yeah. in the temple. That's, that's where that classic argument will lead us. Well, well but Jesus, yeah, and that was Jesus, yeah. <laughs> whose, whose sensitivities were much more trained to godliness than, than even mine are, obviously. Yeah. Um, so as we as we keep moving on, you know, we look at these revolutions. I think it's interesting too, uh, kind of coming back to this idea. What does God think of all this? Uh, Hosea chapter eight verse four, I think, really gives us God's perspective. It says, "They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not." And so in Hosea, God's stepping back and saying, "All this revolutions and stuff." I had no part. I have no idea what's going on down there. That those aren't my kings. Mm. Uh, and again, this is just kind of another one of those interesting side note details. But Hosea one says the word of the Lord that came to Hosea the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those are the kings of of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel. And that's really interesting because if we look at the timeline of the southern kings and the northern kings, Hosea prophesied during the time of Zechariah, Shalu, Menahem, Pekahiah. Pekah and Hosea, um, because that was when Hezekiah was reigning. 
and he doesn't include any of them. And so um, mm. commentators have kind of looked at that and puzzled over that. And the best answer that we can come up with is Jose looked at them and said, they're not really kings. Wow. Like these are illegitimate. They're usurpers. Um, this, is, this is not a good thing that's happening in the country right now. And I think this is just another reminder that as we look at stories in the Bible, we have to be careful to think that just because Scripture relates something doesn't mean it approves of it. Right. So, and because it, it relates something without giving a judgment doesn't mean it doesn't expect you to judge it. Right. Um, what these kings are doing is awful, and when we look elsewhere, we see that God is is definitely not okay with it. Um, Looks like anarchy, to be honest. Yeah, that's true. When you, especially if you go with that, if you continue with that thought from Hosea that he didn't even consider them kings. Yeah. Then the idea is no one was leading. Anarchy. Yep. That's right, and uh, the same the same chapter Hosea eight is where that God says that they have sown the wind and they'll reap the whirlwind. Mm-hmm. So that's you know, a terrible thing to think about. Yeah, and we don't have time to go through it, but if you if you study out the rest of Hosea, um, we did a series through it and with our singles. There's a lot in there about violence and idolatry and immoral. I mean, all those three themes: the violence, the immorality, and the idolatry just pervade the book of Hosea. On that note, have a great week. No, All right, so we'll go ahead and re- no. Um, we still have to talk about the fall of the of Israel, um, as it is uh, interpreted by Second Kings. So Second Kings seventeen. This is a really interesting chapter because we have thus far we basically just had history recorded. Um, most of the book now they'll give interpretations, and a lot of times, especially in narrative, you know the the author will kind of hint you. Uh, what he thinks by including it in a long speech or in a, a speech at a really important part in the story. But here we have uh, almost an entire chapter where the author just stops and says, here's why. Mm. And so uh, we don't really have time uh, to go through and read all of this. Um, but there's several reasons that I gave uh, just as I read through Second Kings 17. And that might be a good exercise, especially looking at verses uh, 7 and following as to uh, 7 through 23, why did God do this? And there's a couple of reasons that I gave. First of all, Israel wanted to become like the nations around them. Uh, 2 Kings 7, <clears throat> 17, verse 7, uh, it says uh, in verse 8, it says, And they walked in the statutes of the heathen, uh, whom the Lord had cast out before Israel. And then in verse 15, it says, And they rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he had made with their fathers, and testimonies, uh, which he had testified against them and followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them. So heathen there is the word for nations. Uh, the Hebrew is goi, goim, the nations. So why is it that Israel wanted so badly to be like the other nations? And what does this teach us uh, as New Testament believers? Honestly, I think about it, and I, I think we've mentioned this in past podcasts, but obviously the the concept of looking like the nations is the same temptation we have with worldliness. Um a desire and there's a almost a grass is greener mentality, um, especially if we're living in a system of, of structure, right? So the, Israel obviously had an expected structure of them, but there's there's always a little bit of rebellion in each of our hearts that would like to know what it'd be like if we're not in that structure. What would what would like because it sure looks like they're enjoying themselves mm. on that other side of the fence. And so what is really going on over there? And this this part moves me because I think as a young pastor right now, I'm just seeing this everywhere. And in my own heart too, but it's it's convicting as you look around and you just see how much worldliness is affecting all of us. Um, sometimes, like, do I sound? I sound a lot like a <laughs> fundamentalist right now. Is this, am I good? Am I yeah? Am I uh, old for myself here? But no, I mean, it's just we are so easily infiltrated by the world. Like I, I realized it was so important last week that 
when speaking to the kids, we just finished up a warning series and I took about five, five plus minutes or so in a very short lesson time to warn them that someday or even now, if they did have a phone to be scared of it, Hmm. be terrified of it because there are things that are going to come like, and and maybe this is how we get there. So I'm, if you were, uh, if any of the kids are listening, you'll remember this, but (laughs) um, we talked about how do we, how do we get deceived so quickly by worldliness? And one major step of that is curiosity. Right, and then curiosity followed by opportunity ends up leading to that worldliness. Um, we're told to be uh, wise to those things which are good and simple to those things which are evil, which is why so many parents you're, you're seeking to protect your kids from even having to hear about the evil. We don't have to know the specifics of evil to know to run from it. Um, but anyway, so we get curious, and and I think Israel often got curious by what the other nations were doing, and those were popular things, and then. Uh, when they had opportunity to pursue them, you know, after they beat the land and all of a sudden they have all the things in front of them, they could take it, they could live the same life. They began to incorporate it. And it just, I mean, it, we see it, it, it killed them in the end. Well, and I think too, from a believer's perspective, from a, whether that believer is an old Testament saint or new Testament believer, and this is going to sound almost radical at first, but bear with me. The world really has its act together. Like they're, they're very impressive. So Israel's looking at the nations around them and they're like, man, Look at them. They've got these armies. They're well arrayed. You know, they they have these well-run administrative centers. Incredible temples. Yeah, we want to we want to be like that. We want to be bigger than we are. And I think believers look at the world and they're like, "Man, look at Harvard. Look at Oxford. Man, they've they've really got their act together." You know, it's unbelievers. And I and I you think you money, look at the influence. You can tell who the PhD candidate is here. <laughs> okay. He's like, "Look at that university." Well, and I think you look at the the elite level of society totally. is totally not run by believers. And that's what 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 says. Yeah. And that's the exact problem that Paul's dealing sure. with with Corinth. Corinth is worldly. Why are they worldly? Because they want they want to be like they want to have all of the bells and whistles like the world. They want to be as impressive as the world is. And Paul says, "But you're not." Right. God chose the weak, he chose the beggarly, he chose the ones who are of ignoble birth. You have to you have to you have to think about it and separate a little bit here because some of that narrative is a lie, right? Yes. So you come to America when we bring missionaries from IPM, they're all foreign nationals. They come here, and I take them to Chick-fil-A. So this is owned by Christians. And they're like, Christians can own something like this? Something this nice? Something this big? Something this ubiquitous? I said, then we go to Hobby Lobby. Like, Christians can own something like this? Christians can develop a company and be this this level? Like, world-class level, this kind of thing? And they can do that? And they, yeah, there's actually a, a born-again believer who's secretary of education. There's actually a born-again believer who's the vice president of the United States of America. Right? There's We have... There is a level at which, you know, you when you hear that thing, Satan says, eat the fruit, it'll make you wise. Mm-hmm. It's not true, right? In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You look at the most known ancient writer of any ancient writer who've ever lived, <laughs> and that is the Apostle Paul. He is the most prolific and preserved and studied writer of all time, right? Nobody's even close. If I, I maybe I'm overstating it. I so I would agree. I mean, it's mm-hmm. amazing who stands out in the wrecks of time. It is this, this light, this truth. And I think it, obviously there's a narrative. I look at I look at a production that goes on like an NBC, and you and you look at that. And you're like, man, that's amazing. Look at how beautiful that is and all that sort of stuff. Uh, sure, it does attract, but we have to start to listen and, and look at the big picture and say, no, there's only one thing that lasts. Mm-hmm. Well, all the wisdom and knowledge is actually hitting Christ. If you want to know that you know something, you have to know Christ. And I think that's kind of the point that Paul's making in First Corinthians 1 and 2 is that 
God is doing something absolutely incredible that you can't explain through people that you wouldn't expect. Exactly. And so when you look back on it later, you realize what God is doing. I was, I was reading a book, and they, they just made the point um, as they were setting it up. They said, imagine that you go back and you're, you, you, know, you look at the Hittite civilization, massive, impressive, strong administrative center. Imagine you go up to the Hittite king and say, "Hey, you know that little that little country <laughs> down in um in the you know by the by the Dead Sea, the down in the Levant, yeah. you know, they are going to outlast you. And one day, when your country is just a pile of dust, and you're only remembered in the annals of history, they are going to be in every country on the world, radically changing things through their research, through their writing, and they are going to produce." a religious system that is going to completely cover the face of the whole earth and you're going to be nothing. And he's going to look at you and be like, you're insane. Right. There's that little people group. And that's the thing, like in the time, it never looks that impressive. And yet when you look back, you realize, wow, God took the, the small and the unimpressive and he did something incredible with it. And we have to live by faith in the moment and say, we're going to trust God that living by his word and living his way is better than living like the world around us. God takes the small things of this world and really ends up giving himself the most glory by exalting and, and protecting and maintaining them. His truth will last. Yeah. Well, um, ah, man, unfortunately, I think we're, we're kind of running out of time here. So uh, if you have time, go back and read through 2 Corinthians 17. That's one that we looked at. Um, second, another, second Kings. Kings second Chronicles. Kings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kings, Chronicles, Corinthians. Kings, Chronicles, Whoa. Corinthians. Whoa, there's a lot going on there. Um, but... Uh, there's a couple of other things you can look at. You, I mean, it's worth thinking through the theme of, of idolatry and what that looks like. Um, Israel ignored God's prophets. Every time God sent a prophet, Israel basically got angry and told them off. Uh, this led them to participate in vile practices. Again, it starts off with, well, we kind of want to be like the other nations, and then I guess we'll serve their gods. And next thing you know, you're offering your children up as sacrifices. They're leading Judah into sin, and then uh, ultimately they never departed from the, that sin of Jeroboam, the sin of worshiping. Uh, at least ostensibly, the right God uh, in the wrong way. What was that line you put in there of sin always takes you further than you wanted to go, yeah. costs you more than you wanted to pay, and keeps you longer than you wanted to stay? Yeah. Certainly true for Israel. So, well, uh, again, unfortunately, that's all that we have time for today. Next week, we're going to be studying the kings of Jotham and Ahaz. And these are two kings who learned that you reap what you sow for better or for worse. Uh, after watching the northern kingdom implode, we're going to be looking at what was going on during the southern kingdom at this time. And you can find these stories in Second Chronicles 27 through 28 and Second Kings 16. So we hope to see you on Sunday and hope you'll join us again next week as we continue working our way through the kings of Israel and Judah. See you later. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. <laughs>